This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. One of the aspects of the gardening life that I love is its hugeness, and yet the universal connection within that hugeness. I felt this when speaking with Fran Soren from Tel Aviv, Israel, or with Penn Pender from Southeastern Australia. We are all gardening under one sky in so many ways. Today, we're joined by a gardener who lives and works beneath the great, big, beautiful sky of Austin, Texas, one of many real gardening epicenters in our country. Linda Lemusverda is a home gardener and gardening advocate in Austin, and as the producer of a weekly program on KLRU-TV PBS in Austin, she is most well known as the Central Texas Gardener. Linda joins us today via Skype from the KLRU-TV PBS studios in Austin. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Jennifer. This is really fun. I am so glad we found the opportunity for this, Linda. What early influences led you to be a gardening advocate? Well, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, in North Dallas. And it was, uh, you know, a land of the green lawns and wax leaf ligustrum shrubs. So I really got my love of gardening, I guess you say, or the outside, but just kind of playing around. I was big into writing stories and creating these games on our bikes. It was at the time of all the mystery espionage shows and James Bond and Honey West. And so I would use the plants as, uh, oh, you know, forts and hiding places. And we would dash down alleys in the dusk and pick peaches and grapes that were overhanging the fences. We'd scour around and we created this fort on a, a vacant lot next door. One of the fun things was the neighbors had a chinaberry tree, which of course is an invasive tree, but at that time everyone had them. And so I invented a game of throwing the seed pods, the girls against the boys, and coming up with this plan on how we could win. And the girls won, yay. So we came up with a lot of little games like that. Oh, horse apples. Horse apples, you know, the Osage orange. It's actually a native plant. The wood is very hard. It's been used by Native Americans for, you know, years and and now for furniture. And so we had so much fun playing with those and cutting them open to get the the sap out of them, which can cause a reaction, I guess, in some people, but it didn't for us. It was just, we just had a lot of fun playing. And then we had um, my grandparents lived in Wisconsin and then moved to Upper Peninsula, Michigan. And we'd spend our summers there, a lot of summers. And it was magical because it's so different. It's green, Mm. the trees are tall. And, you know, I'm just always spinning stories, you know, this romantic thing. We drive through Wisconsin, see the red barns and the green fields and the mists, the huge waterfalls and the scents. It was just amazing. And I think I fell in love with that. So I didn't fall in love with, oh, I'm going to become a gardener. You know, I'm going to plant a tomato plant. I'm going to do this or that. It was more the whole sense of the experience and engaging in the sights and the sounds and the secrets. There was one plant in our front yard, the perfect green lawn, that was a native verbena. It's beautiful. And I learned as an adult it was a native verbena. At that time, I didn't know that. It's calendularia, 
Well, to my parents, it was a weed. They plucked that out. I think now, oh my goodness, you know, we just didn't think about native plants at that time. Mainly, I love the scent of the new mown grass. And I got the job of digging out the leaves under the shrubs. And I thought, this doesn't really make much sense, but it kind of smelled good. <laughs> and it was kind of crackly and fun and tidy. But later, as an adult, I realized, oh my goodness, we just threw out all this free malt. Right. <laughs> you know, right. These days, I collect leaves and pile them onto the beds instead of scraping them away and sending them off somewhere. So I think part of it for me, too, is just engaging in all the changes of how you start to connect with the plants and what they're actually doing and what they mean. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because I would say that in our two lifetimes, we have come a long way as gardeners in, and the gardening community has come a long way in these very um, just awarenesses and knowledge base that you are referring to right here. This idea that there was, at the time that we were both young, uh, a very strong tendency towards tidiness and towards techniques that we now know are actually diminishing some of the richness of our soils, of our plants, of our of our gardens and our places. And it gives me such hope that we have learned some of these things and that so many of us in this community are striving to spread that knowledge and to increase that knowledge for ourselves. I also think one important thing, I thought about this, well, I guess I didn't think this was important, but these days now I'm beginning to see it was, is when I started gardening one year, I ordered a 10 gallon tree. This was before I knew what to do. And it's really better to start with a smaller tree. It really is. But I didn't know that. Yep. And I dug a hole for a 10-gallon tree. And I was astounded. I I still don't get I, I still can't get over it. And I was hauling 10 bags of mulch. And I was doing all this stuff that before it was considered the guy's domain. Remember, it was the guys who go out on Saturday morning and mow the lawn and edge it. And here I was out there hauling around and doing this stuff. And I don't know. I just think that's a, a big part of it, that suddenly it wasn't, as some people like to call it, yardening. It was gardening. Yeah. But even then, I was still doing some yardening in the beginning because I was learning what to do. When we bought our house, I didn't even know what kind of grass we had. Right. Actually, I'm not sure we had grass. We had fire ants. <laughs> but <laughs> in Texas, you probably did. Plants, and, you oh. know, I had no clue. I agree with you that one of the huge changes, not for everybody, but it's getting better. It's more and more all the time, is considering the whole, the holistic picture of what you're doing with the soil, how it works, how the water works, where it goes, how the animals are contributing. Even if you consider them pests, they have a purpose. And if you don't have the pests, you won't have the beneficials. And, you know, I remember back in the day, and this was not that long ago, and it still goes on, people just out there broadly spraying, you know, they see an insect and they would just 
spray everything. And then they would ask, where do the butterflies go? And so I think that's been a huge thing is becoming aware of this stuff on a normal backyard gardener's kind of level, not someone who's in the know and someone who studies this and who does it as a career, but your average person whose garden is not their life. You know, it's their weekend thing yep. or just their yard. Right. And I, I, I agree with you completely. It would, I think it is in both of our mission statements as gardeners and as public voices that more people grow up and garden, no matter what age they are right now, with this concept that that is what normal gardening and what a normal backyard garden looks like. It looks like a holistic approach to food and plants and pollinators and <laughs> maybe some weeds. You you grow up in Dallas, for listeners, just in case you haven't looked at a big map recently, although Texas has been on the news a lot recently. Um, but just to, to remind people, Texas is a big state, and like California or any of our other big states, we have a lot of different climates and zones and, and environments within that state. So Dallas is sort of in the northeastern aspect of the state. You grow up in Dallas. What eventually gets you down to Austin, which is quite a bit south of Dallas? 200 miles. You actually share the Blackland Prairie kind of goes from north to south, a little sliver of it. Mm. So some of the land is the same. But what got me down here was the University of Texas. I came to school here and got a degree in RTF, radio, television, film. I met my husband and then we got married, rented a duplex and started kind of messing around in the dirt a little bit there and then bought a house and that was the end of that free time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you start gardening at that at that home right away? We first were in an apartment near campus and I don't know why I got did this. I really don't. I Bought a few little hanging basket kind of things, which everyone did back then, I guess. And uh, because, like I said, I'd never really gotten into gardening. My parents were not into gardening per se. My mother grew up on a farm in Iowa. And when she left, that was it. She didn't look back. She didn't want to have anything to do with it ever again. And so they did the standard things, you know, that bedding out the annuals and everything pretty and but not gardening per se. So I don't know why this happened. Well, so then we got this little duplex that was um, kind of forlorn looking, you know, and kind of a mess really. And we didn't really have a lot of money to do anything and couldn't buy furniture or anything, but a new nursery opened up about three blocks away. I could walk up there and it was one guy and I wish I'd gone to help him, you know, to help because I would have learned so much. the regrets of that. But in any case, I would go up and buy, you know, a six pack of little flowers and carefully, it would take me three hours, plant them in the front yard, tend them so carefully. And my little neighbor, our next door neighbor in the duplex was an elderly man. And he would come out and just smile and say, oh, this is so lovely. Well, then I got one of those ugly plastic hanging baskets. You know, you could still get those. For cheap, you know, it was probably a quarter or something, and I filled it with purslane. And the mail person, the post postal carrier, yeah. he he would come up and say, 
how pretty. This is so nice to come up and see this on your porch. What is that plant? And so as if I really knew anything, oh, well, that's personally. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then I got, oh, I was reading all these things about herbs. At the time, there was an Army-Navy surplus store, which, of course, was mainly attended by college students who had no money. You get all this stuff pretty cheap. And I got this wooden ammo box. I don't know if you all had those. It was the big thing back then. And they yeah. kind of come back into style. Yeah. You drill the bottom and you have this cute kind of funky little planter. And I filled it with all these herbs. Well, about that time, we got an Irish Setter puppy. Why we did this, I don't know. I had to have this Irish Setter dog. <laughs> so <laughs> we had no money. I mean, it was just crazy. But anyway, she was on the front porch. I was doing something in the yard. And the next thing I knew, she had torn up every plant, thrown oh. it out. Oh. Well, across the street from us at the time was a retirement apartment. And there was a man there who kind of hung out with us a lot. He was really sweet. And we must have appealed to him somehow because we were so young and crazy. He had been a photographer in World War II. And it was fascinating hearing his stories. So he had to come over and photograph the whole thing. And oh, it was just great. So then we bought this house. And like I said, I asked the realtor what kind of grass. I think there might have been some Bermuda, a little bit of St. Augustine in the back. Mainly, it was dust, fire ants, and gazillions of June bugs. You could not walk outside at night without being covered. It was like the birds, the June bug version of the birds or something. <laughs> you know? This was before I'd even started going to classes. I guess maybe I was already starting to get things from the extension office and kind of reading little books here and there at the library. But we had no money once again, and I would take my mop bucket out and collect leaves and squinch them up and put them on the soil where it was just bare earth. Mm. My next door neighbors were Mr. and Mrs. Strada, and um, her mother lived with them at the time. She was a very, she was very elderly at, the, at that time. But she could grow anything. She could go to the cemetery and take a cutting off a great-grandmother's rose bush and bring it back and plant it. It would thrive. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so she'd look over the fence and see me putting this these leaves all around. And she would just smile at me and nod. It was so sweet. Then we had these two trees. And someone said, you know, I think those might be key for pear trees. So sure enough, they got pears, and I went out, was taking pictures of them, and Mr. Estrada comes over and knocks on the door. He'd been kind of our helper and everything. You know, anything we need to know about gardening, cars, plumbing, you know, he's right there. So he <laughs> knocked on the door and said, Linda, you know, if you take pictures of the pear tree, the pears will fall off. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. But he's the one who said he had the perfect lawn, absolutely perfect. You see a weed? You pull it out. You don't spread. You just pull it out. God love Mr. Strata. God, I just adore that man. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Linda, also known as the Central Texas Gardener, grew up in the big state of Texas at a pretty pivotal time in gardening in the U.S. She happily documents some of the progress we've made as gardeners to better understanding, appreciating, and working with the places we cultivate. 
She does this from the well-gardened place of Austin, Texas, home of the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center and all that it symbolizes in terms of conservation and ecologically-minded gardening in our country. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Linda Lamisverda, the Central Texas Gardener out of KLUR-TV-PBS in Austin, Texas. Welcome back. The first thing I did was try to do the Dallas thing. I wanted the azaleas and the camellias and, you know, that sort of thing. I said, I wonder why no one in the neighborhood has azaleas. What's wrong with these people? (laughs) It's because... We're on heavy clay soil. The parts of Dallas that have azaleas are not heavy clay soil. Well, then about that time, the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center formed, and they started doing public events. Mm. And I would go to them and just suck up all this information and buy whatever books. My husband, for Christmas, would get me books like um, Chill Noakes, Propagating Native Plants of the Southwest, the Sally and Wasowski's, Sally and Andy Wasowski came out with their native Texas plant books. Mm. And slowly but surely, nurseries started carrying these plants. It was hard to find. And you weren't going to find them at some of the older um, chain kind of nurseries. Mm-hmm. But more and more, we were getting some new people, mom and pop kind of places who were committed to organic gardening and who were committed to adaptive and native plants, long before people were using adaptive plants mm-hmm. as the, you know, the adaptive plant thing. And so I started doing a few things here and there, and including, I was getting a lot of pass-along plants, and those all tell a story to me. I was meeting people, going to some garden club meetings, and getting pass-along plants, like iris. I still have some that I've had all these years from those people, most drought-tolerant plant ever, can stand any kind of crazy weather condition. Mm -hmm. And slowly started adding native plants mixed with adaptive plants. You know, for listeners who may not have the background, you were incredibly lucky, in my opinion, to be on this educational path of your own at that time in that place. Because the forming of the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in, I believe it was the early 80s when she first started it with Helen Hayes. And it was called at that time the, I think it was like the National Wildflower Research Mm -hmm. Center. And it wasn't until sort of mid-90s that it changed its name to the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. But it definitely stands as a beacon in this country at any time for advocating for our native environments, our native plants. And I would say if anyone in the country rivals uh, the California Native Plant Society for advocacy and education and outreach, it would be the native the, the Native Plant Society of Texas and the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. They their incredible outreach has sent ripples across the globe for why this is important and how to do it well. And the fact that you were there learning as this was happening just seems to me like you were in exactly the right place at the right time for who you went on to become. That's an, that's an interesting observation. And perhaps that is why Austin has a very diverse gardening crowd 
and some of the best nurseries around. You referred briefly to at least one of your big environmental regions, and and that would be the Texas Blackland Prairies that you described as running from almost Dallas all the way down to you and, and maybe even further south. And then, of course, there's the Edwards Plateau. Describe a little bit for, for gardeners and listeners who have not been to that area what what it means to you. What are the characteristics of the place that you garden, Linda? Essentially, it comes down to this. On one side, you have soil, and on the other side, you have rock. And so when it comes to planting native plants, people will make the mistake, oh, this is a native plant. And they put it on the east side, which is the Blackland Prairie side. So you plant a plant in the soil that was really meant for rock. And when you get seven inches of rain, it drowns, it, it, it rots. Mm-hmm. But if you try to take a plant that has deep roots and wants soil and plant it on the west side, and you know, you've taken a, what, a jackhammer? It's a jackhammer through the the rocks to get the plant in in the first place, that it's going to suffer or not thrive because it doesn't have soil. So that's basically what's different. And even within our own city and within central Texas, we have so many little microclimates. It can be, you know, I have friends who live maybe 20 minutes from where I do, let's say seven to eight miles And something will freeze in my garden and not in theirs or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it very difficult sometimes to think about or to understand what to plant, Mm -hmm. where to plant it. And that's why it's good to go and see the demonstration gardens, like at the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. Mm -hmm. You can find out what plants grow in which areas, and sometimes you have to refer to the books. So I think that's the big difference. The thing that characterizes both sides, so to speak, is that we can go three months without rain and then get that amount in 48 hours. And it can be 90 degrees one day, and then it drops to 40 the next and starts raining. So what happens is if people in the soil part, the Blackland Prairie part, build up berms and all for the succulents because they're low water, use low water. Then we get all that rain combined with cold and they rot. Mm. So that's one of the hard things is that people are trying to be water thrifty, water conscious on both sides, the rocky side and the soil side. But then you have to find the plants that can handle what we call the rain bombs because that will happen. It's just one extreme or the other constantly. So that makes it trickier and you just have to pay attention to your soil. And that's not just for us, that's for everybody. Mm -hmm. I have, um, I meet so many people who are getting their first house and planting their first thing and they want to go out and plant this or that right off the bat, the first week they move in. And I say, well, you know, I, you know, I did that too. And let me tell you, you're making a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you really need to bond with the garden somehow, get something in a container, you know, and just, and then look at your garden and look at the light. Where is the light? Because in Texas, it's so harsh. Mm. In other places, you know, you read a plant tag and it says full sun. Well, I'm sorry, not in Texas. Yeah. It really, you know, 
full sun in Texas is really, really hard on many plants. So watch the light. You think it's sunny all day or you think it's shady all day. And then maybe you come home for lunch one day unexpectedly and you see there's a big shaft of light coming down for about 15 minutes. And if you put a shade loving plant there, it's going to fry. But you think you have all this sun, so you put a sun-loving plant there, and then you come home at another time and realize, you know what? It gets the shadow of the house or the trees within an hour, and then they all are lanky. Mm. So I think that is a huge concern for, for us here in Central Texas, but for anybody, is to look at the light, then try to figure out your soil. You have to look at your soil to see what's going to work the best. And then, of course, the issue of the water is, I mean, this is, I say, well, you know, it's common knowledge. Everybody knows this. But you know what? They don't know this. Is that, look at how much water. If you've got something you really love, but it needs to be watered frequently, then put it close to you. Put it close where you're going to pay attention. And don't put it next to that succulent that you will rot if you water the two together. Yeah. This is one of the gifts of the garden is that we learn to observe closely. And in that learning to observe closely, we appreciate and know and are grounded in our places, right? Yes. And that is another excellent point, Jennifer, because what can happen here and to you and to anyone probably, but here we have so many converging zones and we can have four seasons in a week. So what happens is we're always testing. I guess every gardener's testing, always. Let me see if I can push the zone. Let me see (laughs) if I can kind of make this work. It could be what you just said, 10, 15 years, and then bang. A couple of years ago, 2011, we had 100 days of over 100 degrees, no rain. Then No, wait a second. Can we wait? Say that again. You had 100 days of over 100 degrees. Yes. Whoa. And it might have come in at 99. I'd have to look that up. 99. I'd it give it have... to you if it was 99. I'd say that's okay, 100, that Linda. Matter. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but it was record-breaking right. for months. Then that winter, I want to say, in my yard, it got to be 14 degrees, okay, which is unusual. It got to be below 20 for several days. And what happened is we had... Agave Americanas that had been here for 50 years that died, died that yeah. absolutely froze. Then we have, say, someone recommends a particular tree that is an excellent tree, even if it's a native. We have this native or well-adapted, and everything goes fine until you hit that 10-year mark and something completely changes. I guess part of cultivating place is you're never static when you're talking mm-hmm. about living things. Things are never static. They're always going to change as we change. I mean, it's it's part of life, but you have to stay attuned to it. And I think that's one of the best things about being a gardener is that you don't just watch the weather on the computer or on the TV. You're out in it. And you mark the calendar by what's going on. Like for us, I always say, oh, it's February. The Mexican plum is blooming, or it's September. The oxblood lilies are blooming. And so you start to mark the seasons and feel closer. 
So then when the changes inevitably happen, you're prepared to adapt. Describe what Central Texas Gardener is. Central Texas Gardener is a weekly program. And of course, you can watch it on PBS Online, on KLRU, and on YouTube, of course. What we try to do is appeal to the different areas of interest or need that each gardener has. So we go on location and tape generally uh, an individual's garden and hear how they did it and see what inspired their style. Mm. And this is what's so fun because everyone has a different style. Mm. Some people are into succulents, some are into ponds, some into wildlife habitats, some a mix of everything. Some are very traditional, cottage, others are very sleek and uh, minimalist, but everyone has a story and it inspires us to to do, to try to experiment. They tell us their failures. They tell us their successes. Then, and and these are also people who are doing it hands-on. They're not trained. And so they're saying, hey, you know, I started out like this and you could do it too. Then with our host, Tom Spencer, it's a chance to meet with the various experts, either locally or guests from around the country on, um, you know, what is, how to plant for hummingbirds, how to plant for shade, how to deal with deer. We meet with authors, we meet with designers, anything so we can talk, you know, a little bit more in depth about a topic. Then we have something called Backyard Basics, where we show you how to do something. It could be making a recipe, it could be uh, pruning technique, sharpening your tools, planting a seed tray, Mm -hmm. and then our extension agent for horticultural, Daphne Richards, answers our viewer questions, because we get a lot of viewer questions every week if they come to my email. And so we answer those, we pick a plant of the week, here's something that we recommend that you plant, and then viewers, I just love this part. They send us their pictures and their videos, and so every week we feature something from one of our viewers. The other thing that's important to me is that we have viewers who are gardening for the very first time. Yeah. They've never held a shovel. I was there. Texas attracts people from around the country. And so we have a lot of people who may have gardened in Ohio or California or Maine, and they're moving here and they have no idea what to do. And so we try to reach them as well, that here's how you can adapt what you did before, the kind of plants you loved, and here's what maybe you could have instead. They just need this new plant palette. Right. But as you said, astoundingly enough, there's so many plants that we all can grow. That's what I love about social media. Instagram, watching your post on Instagram and others from around the country, and I say, oh my gosh, we can grow that. I didn't know they could grow that. And what makes me so happy sometimes is I, if it's a plant that attracts, say, a, a migrating hummingbird or a migrating butterfly, I think, look, they're probably flying from her house down to her house over here, down to her house in this other state, and they're going to come to mine next. Right. And I think that's really fun, the connectivity of mm-hmm. us all.
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Our guest today, Linda Lamus-Verda, talks with us about the gardening conditions of the great state of Texas, particularly from her location in central Texas, where the rich and fertile Blackland Prairie meets the rocky Edwards Plateau. In terms of extreme gardening and the lessons to be learned from it, Texas has that and more. The state has the largest number of cold hardiness zones of any state in the nation, ranging from a 6A to a 10A. And precipitation can range from 5 inches per year in the west to 60 inches per year in the east. In Austin, Linda gardens with about 30 to 35 inches of rain a year. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Linda Lamusverda, the Central Texas Gardener, out of KLUR-TV PBS in Austin, Texas. Welcome back. The other thing I really want to impress upon younger gardeners, new gardeners, and even veteran gardeners is this is really about you. And yes, we want to choose our plants wisely to save our water resources, to help our pollinators, to save us money and time, honestly. Mm -hmm. You pick the right plant, it's going to take less of your time babying it. You can just enjoy it or sit there and enjoy the hummingbirds coming to it. But don't feel like you have to do what everybody else is doing. If you want a more natural landscape and you don't want the real trendy looking thing, do it. You know, you don't design the inside of your house or pick your clothes necessarily based on what everyone else is doing. So don't be afraid to put your stamp on your garden. Mm -hmm. If you want to add funky art and somebody else thinks funky art is stupid or silly, well, so what? It's not their yard. And I find that over and over that people are shy. They feel like I can't do this because I'll never be as good as that one. And and I say, yes, you can. Just go out and get one plant. It always starts with one plant. You fall in love with one plant. And then you say, you know, I really like those colors together. That really makes me happy. Or it really catches the light really pretty right there by the window. And so I think I'll get another one. And the next thing you know, you find your style. There's just not a formula, but when you enter a garden that has a personal expression, you know it when you when you see it. You know it when yes. you walk in and you go, this is a garden. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sometimes I walk around my neighborhood, diff- different parts where I have never met the people, and I kind of know who these people are yeah, by what exactly. they've done. Yeah. There is that famous quote, show me your garden and I'll tell you who you are. Yes. Now, Texas is known for having an enormous biodiversity of native plants. What would be your, like, five favorite native plants to work with in in your garden? My all-time favorite I recommend for everybody is Turk's Cap. Native plant, it dies back in the winter, but it comes back pretty quickly. So by late March sometimes or April until the first frost, you have this drought-tough, plant that pumps out these gorgeous red tubular flowers that attract hummingbirds and butterflies. And you don't have to do a thing to it except 
enjoy it. Also, the fruits of it are edible for us, high in vitamin C, and they're good for the wildlife. Then for a tree, for the smaller landscape, as many people have now, Mexican plum, say in the 20 to 25 foot range, maybe 15 to 20 feet wide, kind of in that smaller tree, Mm -hmm. but not tiny tree. Generally, it blooms in February. Of course, with weather changes, it could go a few weeks earlier, a few weeks later. Thousands of what I call like bridal shower flowers, hundreds and hundreds of native bees on it, Uh hundreds and butterflies. And the fragrance is delightful. Then it produces little plums that are edible to wildlife and to people. And they're food forest, public food forest here in Austin, where in November or so when the fruits are completely ripe, neighbors walk along and pick the fruits and go home and make jam and pies and stuff with it. Mm. Then Lindheimer muley, any of the grasses really, Lindheimer muley, some people call it, I think, giant muley. Mm. That grass form is so pretty. The seed heads opening now, late summer through fall, and then they're gorgeous all winter. And often butterflies will hide in the, the grasses in the winter. And it just makes this really pretty swaying kind of structural thing that contrasts the fluffier things or the green things or the, you know, the succulent things. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the wallflowers. Everyone loves the wallflowers. I would say that you want Gallardia, the Indian blanket, blooms for a very long time and attracts so many pollinators. But any of the wildflowers, if people could just throw out even just a few, first of all, it's the surprise, you know, the fun of watching these things come up. Mm -hmm. And then a progression. You know, people always think, oh, it's the blue bonnets. But, you know, they're kind of, okay, they're done by April. This keeps going on for months with different things, Mexican hat, Gallardia. Then there are native rain lilies, and there are so many different ones. But right now, they're just blooming everywhere after the rains Mm. that came through with Harvey. And so you're driving along, and you see, you know, those weedy medians that are just nothing to look at. It's just kind of depressing along with all the traffic. And hundreds of these tiny little rain lilies glancing off the light, you know, Mm -hmm. as the light hits them in the morning. Just lovely. Then for, um, say, you have that container or well-drained spot and you want something simple and tidy and silvery, it would be the silver pony foot, Dichondra argentea. It's just so graceful. You know, you put it on a plant, say you live on a balcony, and you could hang that on a plant, and it would just hang down and be beautiful. On the ground, you could put it between different succulents so that you hide just the barren, you know, decomposed granite or whatever moss Mm -hmm. you have there. And then the sedges, you know, there are all kinds of native sedges. They make, you know, that nice little fluffy grassy looking break you know Mm -hmm. they're perfect for containers or little areas where you don't want lawn but not much else will grow because it gets a lot of shade like under our live oak trees Mm -hmm. and so it's perfect you mentioned harvey there are moments in our life where we have these big events and apparently they are happening more and more whether it's fire or flooding or big storms and Your state has just had an enormous event with Hurricane Harvey coming through. Um, How do we as gardeners help each other and support each other 
through these kinds of things. What kind of gardening outreach have you seen in Texas in the wake of Harvey, Linda? Well, Harvey is still, uh, you know, kind of a new event, but I know that um, a couple of years ago, 2015, the Blanco River flooded and many people lost their lives and they lost hundreds of trees. And then right before that, a couple of years before that, we had the Bastrop fires Mm -hmm. that wiped out acres and acres. So there's a group here called Tree Folks who's been very proactive in getting out there and replanting, planting seedlings to rebuild that area because it takes years and years to do that. And so they've, they're working on the Blanco reforestation and on the Bastrop reforestation. And with Harvey, it's, it's too early to see. I don't mm-hmm. know yet what's going to happen. But the native plant societies, the garden clubs, all kind of pitch in together mm-hmm. to provide uh, plants to help their neighbors. You know, the pass along plants, whether for a new gardener or for one that is starting over because of a disaster, mm-hmm. people will find a way to reach out to them. Yeah. If- I don't know that there's any real central here's where to go. That's I'm getting right. a lot of questions about that. Not just not Harvey because it's too early. Right. But for the past things and it just I don't know there's not a a red cross for plants I guess and I remember after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans I actually went down and volunteered in uh, at Longview one of the big gardens there um, fairly shortly maybe four months after three months after the the hurricane came through and a lot of damage was done and so I think that you know, maybe maybe one suggestion for gardeners looking to help gardeners or gardens in that area is to reach out to, say, Peckerwood or reach out to the Arts Center in Houston and just see what they need, see if they need help, see if they need resources in, in the coming months and in the winter and spring following this event. That's a great idea. Yes. Yeah. For you, Linda, at this point in your gardening life and journey and career, why is this work so personally important to you? And and what do you see are its important benefits in a larger cultural context? This has really become an important mission to me. In my lifetime, I've seen people embrace recycling and air quality control And a lot of things that if we hadn't done it or hadn't started, things would be really a mess in 50 years. When it comes to our plants, if people hadn't started thinking about how to deal with drought, how to deal with wildlife as we continue destroying habitat for roads and housing, we're already losing so many species. As a kid, we played with horned toads. They're not quite extinct. I think there's a few around, but we're losing birds. We're losing butterflies. We're losing bees. We're losing lots of animals. And think about this. If we weren't doing this now and slowly changing opinions and slowly changing the landscapes, not only the ground, but of our minds, think what's going to be like in 50 years or 100 years if we've waited too long. Per the Harvey thing, 
they're already saying, okay, we've got to find ways to deal with flooding in Houston. Well, yes, we've, there's always something. We have to be working on it because otherwise it's not going to get better. We're not ever going to have rain all the time again. We are always going to be water strapped for the future. And we're always going to keep building more buildings. But now at least there are buildings that have gardens on the roof. People are including more and more of that, or even saying within cities, we need to have little mini parks and public little areas with plants for the wildlife so that on your rooftop garden, you can experience a hummingbird and you could keep them alive, or you can have a beehive on your roof. And so I think that's part of my mission is to help people understand it's not just for creating a beautiful place to live, which I think is very important. I think that we all feel happy when we're driving down a street and things are pretty and we come home and the neighborhood is pretty. It inspires us, it encourages us, it makes us feel good. But going beyond that, that it's pretty in a significant way that it will help the wildlife, that it will save water, that it will help our drinking sources if we're not applying fertilizers to it. Think mm -hmm. about how much better things would be if we just got connected back more to a natural way of gardening instead of just no garden and just a plain old yard. One of the big issues right now and I know this is huge in California, is that in the interest of saving water, people ripped out all their grass and ripped out everything and put down rocks. Well, I've seen countless of these where, so you have a tree and an agave and a bunch of rocks, white rocks or black rocks. Do you know how hot that gets? Even in April, well, already those trees are dying in those landscapes. You will not ever see any sign of wildlife. And generally what happens is within a month, it's peppered with Bermuda grass or nutsedge or something. And so it's important for me to help people understand that you don't have to have nothing to save water. In fact, we have done shows where we show how you have all that rock and it goes off into the watershed. It just sloughs right off into the watershed. There's no place really for it to go necessarily. And I get a lot of emails from people who bought homes and all these rocks are put down and now they have the Bermuda grass and the nut grass. They don't want to sp spray a, an herbicide on it. You wanted to save water, but now you're just going to put a bunch of herbicides into the watershed. That's not really great thinking right there. So I encourage people to think about ways how you can have coolness and depth without doing a lot of rocks and without necessarily being a gardener because not everyone is. I get it. You know, I'm not a car mechanic or I'm not a skier. You know, there's lots of different hobbies and not everyone is interested in gardening. So that you can have a place with just sedges or if you just want a lawn, okay, that's fine. Don't fertilize it. Don't mow it too high. Let the clipping stay on it. It's still going to be a cozy, cool habitat for the little creatures and beetles that live under the soil. 
I really think that people have to use a little bit more common sense and just not go one way or the other. Is there anything else that you would like to add? When I connect to cultivating place, I always think of this. I almost wish I had a camera with me that day, but I wouldn't want to invade on her privacy. But I was at a nursery and there was an elderly woman there, very frail looking, kind of faded clothes. And she was clutching this little plant to her breast and looking at it with such love. Mm. And even thinking about now, tears come to my eyes. And and I thought, she probably doesn't read the magazines and she doesn't care what's in style. She found this beautiful little plant and she's gonna love it. And for her, that's gonna be part of cultivating her place. When she comes home, it's gonna be to be that to that plant, really. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today, Linda. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Jennifer, thank you. This is a great honor. Linda Lamus Verda is a home gardener and gardening advocate in Austin, Texas. She is perhaps best well known as the Central Texas Gardener on KLRU-TV PBS in Austin. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivating Place and value these conversations, subscribe to the program on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, give it a rating and review. Most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about these things we love and which connect us. Together, we make a difference. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.